There is a correction to make. The gospel reading this morning is actually Matthew 3, verse 1 through 12, and that's going to be our text this morning. Have you ever seen a man on fire? Our text this morning is Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. Open our hearts and open our eyes to understand to know our times, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 At the end of summer, thousands of people gather in the Nevada desert for a celebration of the weird. The Burning Man Festival ends with setting a giant wooden man on fire. I had a co-worker who was an early Burning Man attender. She used to take her small children, ages eight and nine, pretty strange parenting, to witness the festival's culmination, the setting aflame of the immense wooden man. This morning, we'll see some men aflame as we look at Matthew 3 and see the advent of fiery prophets. The advent of fiery prophets. Go ahead and open the Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. And it says here in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now let's take a look at this text here. So we've got some very key concepts laid up in the text. First of all, we've got this idea of the wilderness of Judea. How did it become the wilderness of Judea? Now you may remember, Israel was a united kingdom under David and Solomon. And in the days after Solomon, under his son's rule, it split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah consisted primarily of two tribes. The northern kingdom consisted of the other ten, but then they went into captivity. Half of the nation, the ten tribes in the north, went into Assyria, and the two tribes of the south, Judah, went into captivity in Babylon. Twelve tribes went into captivity, but when they came back, they were called the Jews. Why the Jews? Because they're Judah heights. Now they're all considered under the royal tribe of Judah, and hence Judea that we see here. In the wilderness of Judea, even the history of the world, with the names of places reflecting the royal tribe of Israel, is anticipating the coming of the king. And here we see John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We see that John the Baptist acts like a new Moses. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moses will not come into the promised land. Moses in Deuteronomy must prepare the people of God for entrance into the land, but he's not going in. The kingdom of heaven was at hand for the people of Israel in those days, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand in the days of John the Baptist. It was for Moses to prepare the people of God for Joshua to take the people into the land. For Joshua to take the people into the land. And 
you remember, when you change Joshua's name in Hebrew into Greek, what do you get? You get Jesus. You get Jesus. Like Moses, John resides in the wilderness outside the land. We see that John is actually residing outside the land. We'll see that in a second. Going into verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Kids, guess what? This wasn't the fruit of the locust tree. I've heard people say that. No, there's nothing wrong with bugs. Actually, locusts are clean food according to the Old Testament dietary law. It was probably great big grasshoppers. I've heard that when you roast them on a fire, they taste like grilled shrimp. No, thank you. <laughs> now notice here, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. John is very intentional about where he's at, what he's wearing, and what he's saying. And notice here, he's wearing this garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. What's that all about? Now the last man to wear a hair garment and a leather belt in the Bible was Elijah. Elijah, the prophet of fire. Now, back way in 2 Kings chapter 1, we had a situation where King Ahaziah fell off a roof. He fell through another roof, and he was injured, and he was laid up in bed, injured very badly, probably had some sort of inflammation of his internal organs. He's wondering, is he going to die? And so he sends runners out, runners not to find a prophet of God, to inquire of Yahweh, but rather runners to go to another city, to go to the city of Ekron, of the Philistines, to inquire of Baalzebub, Beelzebub. He sends runners to go inquire of a false god, shall I live or die? But these runners, as they're going along, they come across Elijah, Elijah the prophet. And he says, you go back and tell the king, he's not getting up out of his bed. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7, check this out. He said to them, this is King Ahaziah talking, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. You see, that's why when John comes, everybody's wondering because of the prophecies. In the Old Testament about Elijah will come again, will come and announce the coming of the king. And so they asked John, are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not Elijah, but I'm coming in the spirit of Elijah. And he's dressed just like Elijah. And he's standing in a specific place. And we see that John eats a diet not unlike Moses. Why? Complete reliance on God. Eating locusts and wild honey that are just there is like eating manna and quail in the wilderness. And Moses was a fiery prophet, was he not? Remember, Moses was consecrated, set apart for his ministry through the voice that came out of the burning bush. And then Moses took the people of God to Mount Sinai to receive the law. And God came down in fire and he announced the way and prepared the way for Joshua. Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. And then a second time, we see in the Old Testament the same pattern. Joshua, the fiery prophet, who calls down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, prepares the way for Elisha. Elisha. El-Ish. 
Isha, which means God is salvation. And now we see this pattern for a third time. Isn't that cool? For a third time, we've got somebody announcing the way. We've got a prophet coming. And a third time, a prophet, John the Baptist, will blaze the way for the coming of the final king who will bring the people into the promised land. Going on to verse 5, chapter 3 of Matthew. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was baptizing outside the land. Now watch this. If you go to John chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And if you look at a map and speculation, archaeologists, where this Bethany was, I believe it's right at the exact spot where Joshua came to the river. And when the feet of the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant touched the water, it parts in two and they came into the Promised Land, which is the exact same spot where we see that Elijah and Elisha were standing on the far shore. And chariots of fire came and took Elijah up into heaven. His cloak dropped off. Elisha picks it up as his own, touches the river, it parts, and he comes into the Promised Land in conquest. And now, John the Baptist, third time's the charm, announcing the coming of the way of the Lord. Jesus is going to soon show up there, be baptized on the far shore, and in order for him to go into the wilderness north of Jericho, it means that he's going to cross through the Jordan River, third time in conquest, into the land. But unlike the days of Elijah, where Israel cowered in fear of Ahab and Jezebel and their false gods, Israel is flowing out to be baptized and is repenting. The exile has washed away idolatry, but a new sin has arisen, the sin of legalism. Let's go on to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, be fruitful in keeping with repentance. Pharisees, Sadducees. We looked at the Sadducees recently, but be reminded the Pharisees, they're kind of like the fundamentalists of their day. They're the lay teachers of the law. Now the problem is they were overdosing on tradition because they didn't want to fall back into Israel's past sins of idolatry. They created rules to keep the people from bowing down before idols. And then they created rules in front of those rules to keep people from bowing down to idols. And these then obscured the law of God. But the Sadducees are the priestly class. They're connected to Rome and they're wealthy. They denied the resurrection and angels and spirits and typically denied the rest of the Old Testament outside of Torah. They weren't into tradition. And so they're kind of the mere opposite of the Pharisees. But they're both in opposition to Jesus. Their eyes are blinded to the coming of Messiah. And John sees through their hypocrisy. They came down to check things out as authorities of Israel, but they refused baptism. If you've got a Bible, take a look at Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Look what happens. Jesus speaking here, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's an amazing statement, by the way. 
The greatest of the Old Testament prophets is John. But the least of those in the kingdom of God are greater than he. That's talking about you and I, brethren. Verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, which by the way would have been overwhelmingly Sadducees, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They wouldn't baptize themselves, they wouldn't be baptized in preparation for the coming of Messiah. They wanted to stand afar off with their arms crossed. They think they knew everything. They're not going to listen to the words of John, and they won't listen to the words of Jesus. Going on, back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. John continues speaking here. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones, these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. What's that about? Now, a lot of times, doubtless, you've read this and you think this is all about God's power. He could, he could take this Bible here and he could make a person out of it if he wanted to. He took us from the dust of the earth so God can make people from stones. Is that what that's about or is there something specific to this? Again, John's at a specific place. John's dressed in a specific manner. And John here says, we have Abraham as our father, but I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Where is John at? He's right there by Gilgal. Remember Gilgal? Remember Joshua comes with the people of God, the river parts, and what did they do? They made a memorial of stones in the river, but they also took big stones from the river. How many did they take? Kids, do you know how many stones were in this memorial? Twelve. Twelve stones for the tribes of Israel. Stones representing people. They took those twelve stones to their camp at Gilgal that night, and they set up a memorial to remind Israel always that God was faithful and delivered his people. And here's John at Gilgal, that same place. And what does he say? For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I believe he's referring to the stones of Gilgal. From these stones, God will raise up. From the least of the 12 tribes, God will raise them up. He doesn't need you, scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't need you, lawyers, priests, and Sadducees. God will raise up people from stones if necessary. And let us take heed as well. God doesn't need us if we become proud. If we start thinking, hey man, it's all about being a Christian in America. If it's all about being reformed. If it's all about being whatever our traditions are, God doesn't need us if we become proud. He'll raise up Nigeria. He'll raise up Indonesia. He'll raise up Iran, and he will make them great if we become proud, because God can raise up followers from stones. Going on to verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Isaiah and Jeremiah speak of Judah and Jerusalem as great trees, representing the great families and dynasties of Israel. But they're cut down and burned. Fruitless trees will be burned. Pharisaic and Sadducee trees that have no fruit will be burned. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and 
fire and fire. John here says, I'm not the prophet of fire. Notice before this, all the trailblazers were fiery prophets. But not this time. Something different's happening. Because the one who's being announced is going to be bringing the fire. Jesus is bringing fire with the Holy Spirit. But I've got a question for you. Who are the fiery prophets? Who are the fiery prophets? Jesus is bringing the fire. He's going to pour out his spirit. And what happens at Pentecost? Tongues of fire. Why? Because where the spirit goes, the holy fire goes. When the fire of the spirit comes upon the people of God, and the spirit's been among his people ever since the day of Pentecost, so holy fire goes. And when the people of God open their mouths, they speak forth holy fire. So who are the fiery prophets? You are, brethren. You are. You're the fiery prophets of this age between the Advents. The first advent of Jesus ends with his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit and fire upon the church, the community of fiery prophets. If the early church, not just the 12 apostles, were fiery prophets who set the Roman world on fire, and look what God's been doing. Look at how God's been sending fire upon the earth through ordinary people, but by the power of the Spirit, He's been converting the world. The fiery prophets set the Roman world on fire. And what could God do with us in Central Texas? Do you believe it, brother? Do you believe it? Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. amen. The Spirit's with us and the Spirit is upon us. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The advent of fiery prophets is the age in which the ambassadors of King Jesus are going forth in the fire of the Holy Spirit and preaching the fire of the gospel. Now, this is not talking about us doing weird things and barking like dogs. No, friends, the Spirit comes upon us. And when we preach the Word of God, when we preach the Gospel, the Spirit's moving ahead of us, opening hearts, so our words become like fire that set people on fire with the Gospel. Fire which will purify the wheat in this age and burn the chaff with unquenchableness in the age to come. The fiery prophets of Advent have received their orders from their king. And we do it every week. I want to encourage you to think about it like this. We're an army. We've been gathered each week to receive our orders from the king. We go through this ritual of liturgy, which comes straight from the Bible. We come in, we confess our sins, we're reminded that we're forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're set apart and reoriented to the reading and the preaching of the Word. And then we sit down at peace with God, and we are fed from the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you may notice at the end of the service, we have something called the commission. And there we receive the charge. A charge for the army of God to go forth and do something. Jesus gives that to us in the Great Commission. And it says there, and I want to remind you of this because I know that a lot of times, kids, you hear the Great Commission at the end of the service, it just goes over your head. But it's commission. It's marching orders for an army of fiery prophets. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. 
always to the end of the age. A few years ago, fires roared through the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Hurricane-strength winds whipped up flames that charged toward Gatlinburg, sending residents fleeing before the inferno. Fireman Rain Moore said, everywhere you looked, there were fires everywhere. It was like driving into hell. The first advent of Jesus brought fire too. Uncontrollable, roaring, righteous fire that is whipped along by the divine wind of the Holy Ghost. But it's not a vision of hell. Rather, it's a vision of heaven. And you are those who are set ablaze with holy fire. This morning we've seen from the Gospel of Matthew the advent of fiery prophets. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us. May we rejoice in the coming of the age of fiery prophets, in this age between the advents of your Son. Bless us and strengthen us to preach fire. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.